Hi folks, this is Sadia Yaqub, and you're listening to History Speaks on the Maidan Podcast, a series that situates the Islamic intellectual tradition within its socio-political context and connects it to pertinent issues today. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Mahmoud Kouria and Matthew Steele about their research on Islamic law in regions that are often treated as peripheral. Matthew looks at the Maliki legal school across Sudan, Mauritania, and Guinea, and Mahmoud studies the Shafi legal school across the Indian Ocean, connecting East Africa, Yemen, South Asia, and Southeast Asia. Our conversation covered many important topics in the study of Islamic law, thinking about the life of legal texts as they traveled across the Afro-Asian world, the construction of the center and peripheries in the study of Islamic law, and the relation between Arabic and local languages in the writing and teaching of legal texts. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Mahmoud and Matthew. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mahmoud and Matthew, for joining me today and uh, coming to speak with me about your research and your scholarship on Islamic law. Um, I wanted to to begin um, by asking you if you could give us a sense of, um, you know, geographically, temporally, give us a sense of, you know, where you're located and what specifically you're studying. Thank you, Matthew, and thank you also, Sadia, for having me uh, on this podcast, which is a very uh, important uh, sort of conversation on the history of Islamic law. Uh, for me personally, what I I do sort of like both uh, temporarily and regionally, uh, something that cut, uh, cuts us, cuts across different regions and uh, periods. Uh, even then, I would uh, mostly situate my work as part of uh, the Indian Ocean world. Uh, so that in itself is a, a large geographical area. Uh, so mostly on East Africa, uh, Southern Arabia, uh, and then coastal South Asia, and then Southeast Asia. These are some of the areas that I sort of look at for my research. And uh, also... Uh, temporarily, I start uh, by around 9th century and then go up to 19th and even mid-20th century. And I do this mainly because the history of Islamic law in the Indian Ocean world, so to speak, uh, before uh, for a time period before uh, 1800 is uh, rarely explored. Uh, and uh, then also I don't... Uh, like to you know uh, do the uh, or I also do not aim to do a comprehensive study of the whole uh, Indian Ocean world. My focus is primarily on the history of uh, Shafi school of uh, law after the classical period, and so I uh, look at one particular uh, legal text written in 13th century uh, in Syria and the ways in which it was uh, circulated across the. Indian Ocean uh, region. So in that sense, my work sort of starts in the uh, Mediterranean or Eastern Mediterranean and then uh, goes to the Indian Ocean and then the ways in which this particular text, Minhaj Talibin of Imam Nawawi, was uh, circulated in the Indian Ocean literal through South Arabia uh, to East Africa, to South Asia and to Southeast Asia through multiple commentaries, super commentaries, uh, super super commentaries and translations and so forth. So that's why I, I, I have a sort of 
textual code so to speak that connects all these regions and time periods that sounds great thank you i i love the uh this tradition of you know you have a text and commentary and then the, the commentary on the commentary and it just kind of keeps going there was this really great meme i don't know if you guys saw recently on um siblings of Elm is this I think UK based group and so they had this like little meme that was going around on social media giving people a sense of what exactly these commentaries do where you have like this kind of initial text that has one sentence and by the time you get to the super commentary there's like six pages <laughs> <laughs> describing that one sentence and I was like this is so great. Yeah. Uh, Matthew? Yes um so, uh, Sadia, uh, first, thank you very much for, for having me. I'm, I'm hugely flattered to, to be a part of the conversation and, and a part of the podcast and also to, to be in the, the, the discussion with Mahmoud. Um, so kind of similarly, but in a, a very different region, um, I work on Islamic law in, in Africa, um, specifically in Saharan and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I focus most especially on, on Mauritania, on Sudan, and on Guinea. Um, Temporally, um, I, and, and I think Mahmoud kind of pointed to this in his own work, sort of my historical period is, is um, um, you know, very much kind of confined and limited by the source material that is available to us. Um, and so although uh, Islamic law has a much longer history in Africa than uh, I focus on, um, I mostly began focusing in sort of the 16th century in Mauritania um, and the 18th and 19th century in Sudan at about that same time period in, in, in Guinea as well. Um, and I, you know, in, in, in Africa, Islamic law is, you know, most associated in the literature with the enforcement of Islamic law, with, with its administration by, generally by, by modern states, colonial or post-colonial. Um, and it, that really isn't my interest. I'm trying to kind of bring out a more nuanced or, or textured picture of Islamic law by focusing on, on, on Islamic jurisprudence or FIP, um, as kind of the, the scholastic or speculative enterprise of, of legists and legal specialists um, really at the peripheries or below um, the much kind of larger and, and, and more celebrated centers of Islamic scholarship in places like Egypt and Morocco. Um, and so, you know, by focusing on, on Islamic law, not as just what states do, um, but actually kind of a more uh, discursive and, and dynamic exchange between generally independent legal scholars and the communities that they are embedded in, Minhajat al-Labin. I, I also focus on a 14th century Maliki legal text. So I, I work in the, in the, the Maliki um, uh, world in Africa, um, a 14th century Maliki legal text uh, that's the abridgment of, of an Egyptian scholar named Khalil ibn Sahak. Um, so it's called the Mkhtasar of Khalil, um, or in different places, places of Mauritania and elsewhere, it'll often just be kind of abbreviated to as Khalil. Um, and so I follow it. I try to sort of trace and explore how Islamic law as a, a, a scholastic discipline and speculative endeavor develops oftentimes through and around this text, um, through exactly like Mahmoud, through commentaries and super commentaries, and especially in, in the Sahara and places like Mauritania, through versification, which is super fun and difficult, um, and even uh, 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 Juris uh, Council opinions through through Nawaza literature uh, and things like that. It's really interesting, you know, both of you saying this thing, pointing out the ways in which um, 
in the particular you know regions that you're that you're looking at islamic law has often been understood in particular ways so Mahmoud, you were saying this thing that um you know that it hasn't been that largely sort of islamic law in south and southeast asia is studied from the 18th century onwards and not much earlier uh, or you know matthew you were saying about the ways in which largely islamic laws uh, in the context of west africa looked at or even you know sudan looked at in terms of state and state implementation of uh, islamic law and that you know both of you are trying to kind of push these uh, ways in which largely um the scholarship has thought about islamic law in these regions so connected to that i wanted to ask you so what brought you to studying islamic law in these particular regions uh, or in these uh, you know focusing on these particular texts what sort of brought you to where you're at uh, in my case, uh, it's a very interesting question. Uh, I can address this question in multiple ways. Uh, and uh, recently I have been trying to write uh, on this for a, for the Harvard Islamic Law blog series on you know addressing some of the core concerns that brought me into studying Islamic law. And one thing uh, that I found very interesting, or uh, is that I studied Islam? I have been studying Islamic law uh, in Western epistemologies in the last uh, ten years or so. When I started my PhD here in Leiden University in the Netherlands, uh, but before that, I I studied ancient Indian history for my uh, MA and MPhil in India in New Delhi Jawaharlal Nehru University. But before this interregnum, I had uh, studied Islamic law in a uh, in a more traditional uh, sense of the word, like in a I could say a madrasa, but not necessarily a madrasa. I was also uh, following the uh, quote unquote secular education, uh, university education, along with the religious disciplines. But then, what I realized once I reflect on this, that uh, I studied in that particular stream for twelve years. Uh, uh, studying Islamic law, but along with many other disciplines. And now once I reflect on uh, the 12 year education as well as the last 10 years, uh, notwithstanding the three years of, you could say, an interregnum without not much engaging with Islamic law, I realize that there is a huge gap in the ways in which Islamic law is uh, approached. On one hand, there is this traditional in quote unquote, traditional scholarship on Islamic law uh, in the uh, Muslim world. Uh, whereas uh, it is completely disconnected from the ways in which the Western scholars have been studying Islamic law. But one thing that uh, I personally find it uh, interesting is that scholars who study, uh, especially in the West, uh, Islamic law, uh, has rarely have rarely you know, taken into consideration the ways in which Islamic law developed uh, in a place like South Asia, which has the largest Muslim population in the world, uh, or Southeast Asia, which has the largest uh, Islamic country in the world. You know, their histories of, you know, Islam or uh, specifically Islamic law uh, are rarely taken into account. And so if you look at any classical studies or even textbooks on these topics, such as, you know, whether it's you know, the early works of uh, Joseph Schacht or, you know, Wailah Halak or, you know, even latest uh, textbooks engages with Islamic law in these areas, in these subcontinents, only from the 18th century onward, as if, you know, when, let's say, when the British or the Dutch come into the scenario or when the European come to the scenario and try to, 
you know implement uh, islamic laws um, through something like anglo muhammadan law or you know or, uh, in the dutch tradition the muharrar code and so forth or adat rakht and so forth uh, as if you know islamic law did not exist in these subcontinents you know, for a time before the europeans came so that sort of you know gap was something very you know interesting for me so that's how i started to explore uh, you know what were the texts that were circulated in these regions before the europeans came into the scenario so i came across uh, these texts uh, that were written in malabar uh, in south southwest india as well as in in aceh and in sumatra and many other places in 16th century 17th century 18th century and some of them are also going back a little bit earlier and all these texts interestingly are sort of connected they are of course regionally produced you know part uh, part of the local regional expressions of islam but also very much part of the wider networks of the texts so you know we cannot talk about islamic law in these regions without addressing the long genealogy or the textual genealogies of the uh, of the islamic law and that's how i i would say you know i uh, thought you know these two traditions both scholarly as well as uh, uh you know uh the the actual practices of islamic law you know to be connected uh in a in a uh in whatever way i can uh do you know i love what you're both describing of these kinds of gaps between the academic study of islamic law and then what happens when you're in these communities that live and breathe with the law like it's not just something that they're necessarily academically studying uh, you know for me it was a very similar kind of journey in that um you know i mean i i grew up in a muslim household so law was always right like part of 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 your life but when i you know sat down to kind of study it in a very sustained way it was in the academy uh and then eventually i i made my way to egypt and then to jordan and i was you know specifically interested in studying hanafi law uh and i was again struck very similar to what both of you are describing that for you know for the people there this was a living tradition right and so a lot of the kind of ways that i had been studying hanafi fiqh so far was not the ways in which they were thinking about it and then i was noting the connections that they have so the sheikh that i studied with in jordan was connected to these deobandi uh hanafi scholars in pakistan and 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 india north india and you know and 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 he would sort of talk in this way where he'd be like well you know those south asian hanafis different from our kind of hanafis right so it's like there were even differentiations between the kind of hanafism that moves from you know region to region and so it's just really interesting to hear you both describe a very similar experience where it's like there's the you know there's this way in which the academic study of islamic law is doing is has its own kind of conversation that often can be you know out of sync with what's happening in these communities and it's important for us as scholars to kind of recognize that and know where it is that you know we need to maybe think about bridging those gaps um i wanted to ask uh you know this question or this thing that both of you mentioned which was about the language of the text that you're that you're looking at or the the sort of you know multiple texts that you're looking at seems to be that they're not just in arabic so if you could maybe just describe that a little bit for us uh and then maybe uh give us a sense of how they are connected to this corpus of legal texts that are written in arabic but they're also writing in other languages <laughs> yeah. 
in my case, uh, what I mostly have been dealing with for my PhD uh, were, even though I wanted to incorporate a lot of non-Arabic materials, uh, the 60 or 70 percentage of the materials were still Arabic. Uh, so uh, primarily because I was looking at the commentaries of Minhaj Talibin. So I was looking at one commentary by Ibn Hajar al-Haytami, it's called Tuhfat al-Muhtaj, and then it's an indirect uh, summary, I would say, written in Malabar in the 16th century, possibly one of his students is, uh, itself, uh, called Zainuddin al-Malaybari, so his Fatwa al-Mu'ayn, and then uh, it's uh, super commentaries, you could say, uh, by one Javanese author from Java, Indonesia, uh, and then one Egyptian scholar. Both of them studied and worked together in uh, in Mecca in the 19th century. So uh, these were my central texts, uh, and all these texts were written in, in uh, Arabic. So uh, these were like, I would say, 60% of my main, uh, principal sources were in Arabic. But then I supplemented all these sources with additional uh, you know, contextual texts, so to speak, you know, other historical materials. And these were very uh, diverse. They uh, were written in Malayalam, uh, in in Tamil, and some of the translations, these were widely translated, especially Fatul Marin, Minhaj Talibi, in Tuhfa, they were translated into European languages once we come to 19th century, uh, 18th and 19th century, uh, into Dutch, into French, into German, uh, and of course English uh, in the early 20th century uh, and then also along with it like in the Southeast Asian context uh, Malay text and even though these are Malay they are like you know highly one text that I sort of closely studied called Suratul Mustaqim one of the earliest texts that uh, we have from the Malay world uh, written by uh, written in uh, in mid 17th century in Bandache uh, so the text is primarily in Malay, but then it has a lot of Achanese, uh, Achanese vocabulary uh, into it. Uh, and even more interestingly, and uh, that is why it's very much part of the Indian Ocean story, this very text in Malay, a first fiqh text in Malay, so to speak, was written by a Gujarati scholar who basically belonged to the Hadrami tradition. Or, you know, So his family came from Yemen, settled in Gujarat, and then he himself moved to uh, uh, Bandache to uh, Indonesia, present-day Indonesia, uh, following his uncle who had already uh, was working there in the late 16th century. So all these sort of diverse sources sort of, you know, complement the praying focus that I have been, you know, doing. And, and I uh, strongly believe that you cannot do a history of Islamic law, you know, without looking at this diverse number of sources. And as we all know that, you know, whenever uh, someone has to do history of Islamic law, we always jump into, you know, Arabic as if that is the only source. But as I mentioned in the beginning, like you know, the majority of Muslims still live either in South Asia or Southeast Asia. And the languages such as Bengali or uh, Urdu uh, and Malay uh, or are equally important languages for the study of Islam as well as more specifically history of Islamic law as well. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And it raises, raises this really great point about, you know, 
what do we count as a legal text, right? Also, in that, uh, you know, there's a way in which a certain assumption about what is the language of Islamic law is also shaping our assumption about what constitutes something as a legal text, which you're also trying to kind of, you know, push us to think about. Yeah, definitely. Just before uh, Matthew, I mean, I'll, I'll quickly add on uh, on this uh, particular aspect that uh, Saidiya pointed out. Uh, I believe that primarily uh, something uh, like Shafi'i School of Law was successful uh, in a place like Southeast Asia or even in the Swahili coast, uh, mainly because uh, the scholars in these, you know, or the Islamic jurists or jurist consuls in the in these regions were insisting on using the local languages in order to express Islamic law or in order to write about Islamic law. So, especially in the Malay world, we see that, for example, Nuruddin al Raniri, uh, you know, when he was writing his Sirat al Mustaqim, even though he was you know, he belonged to an Arab family and he was educated and trained in the Middle East in the Hijaz. Still, he chose to write uh, lang- uh, text in, in the Malay and which sort of like advanced or facilitated the, uh, you know, the very circulation or the very survival of Shafi'i school of law in this tradition. So Islamic law in that sense, like the la- question of language was very important for many of these uh, scholars. I think I had a, kind of a similar experience. I... You know, when I knew that I wanted to work on Islamic law in Africa, um, I, I had a kind of a, a, a general approximation that um, it would seem like a good idea to try to uh, uh, learn and employ uh, African languages. Um, and so I spent a bunch of years studying uh, uh, Pular, most specifically, so Pular in, in, in Guinea, um, um, which saw in sort of the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, a really vibrant um, intellectual landscape through uh, a kind of political uh, or a polity called uh, the Futajalo. So I thought that I would, um, you know, spend many years studying this language and and you know really try to focus on how Islamic law Islamic law is 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 constituted and embedded um, in uh, sort of these non Arabic linguistic spaces, um, and I had some success at that. Um, but, but like Mahmoud, um, you know, I think a, a larger portion of my work now still winds up kind of returning to Arabic source material. And it's not, uh, I think it's, it's not, um, my preference, but, um, you know, there are some, some source and kind of methodological constraints, um, you know, that I've, I've, uh, I've encountered. You know, the first is that, um, you know, there's a very, as, as you've said, like there's a very clear distinction between the languages of, of Islamic law and the textual sources of them. And so um, where I've found um, more success at finding, like for example, if I'm trying to trace kind of the, the development or um, the contestation, the debates um, around and about Islamic law through the transmission of, of, of the Muqasar Khalil, um, I've found a more productive way of studying that through ethnography um, of learning circles in non-Arabic languages. Um, and so, um, you know, you can experience um, the ways in which the text is transmitted, both glossed and, and there's this really kind of interesting philosophical debate about, you know, what is translation and what is gloss in this case, right? What is the commentary and what is mere translation? And it often kind of feels like a you know, subjectively normative judgment. Um, but um, you can see the text being transmitted in real time 
and moving between multiple registers, not just Arabic and non-Arabic, Arabic and Pular, um, but, but a variety of different kind of um, um, local dialects um, and, and embedded in local, local systems of meaning. Um, and so that's been very, very profitable. It's been exceedingly difficult, but very profitable. Um, in terms of, of doing a, a sort of a more historical uh, study on non-Arabic source material. So in, in Africa, this is, I mean, I guess really conceptually everywhere, but in Africa, it's, it's been you know, most famously um, sort of brought under the umbrella of, of hegemony scholarship, um, essentially a scholarship in non-Arabic languages written in Arabic script. And so, you know, there, you know, in the Futujalo in the 18th, 19th century, we have really, really interesting, even Pular Ajami manuscript sources for interesting stuff going on with law, but they generally are, if they're talking about Khalil, they're not doing it in sort of the, the way that we would normally assume through a commentary or versification or other. Um, and so there, there are a few, uh, but they're, they're pretty exceptional finding sort of commentaries in, uh, in Susi in Morocco, um, in Hassania, Mauritania, essentially dialects of Arabic rather than um, uh, different languages. Um, and we know that, you know, especially uh, in Hausa, in, in, in um, you know, uh, what is present in Nigeria, and even in Pular, both in Senegal and in, in what was the Futatoro, and in Ghanaim, in Futajalo, and even Futamasina, and in, in, in what is present in Mali, you know, you can find um, marginalia, you can find really interesting notes written. Um, in those languages, on even something like uh, uh, the Mutasar Khalil, um, but uh, I've not found as easily sort of an accessible um, commentary, a written commentary tradition around uh, around sort of this gold standard or culmination of, of, of Maliki jurisprudence. Um, I wanted to, you know, ask this question about uh, audience. Um, and like, do you have a sense and, you know, for both of you in terms of the uh, materials that you're looking at, you know, who was the sort of imagined audience? So the, you know, the, that original text that's put into verse, uh, supposedly to be memorized, is this, who is expected to memorize this? Or these texts that are being written in Malay or in Malayalam, right? Uh, are they being written to be read by a scholarly audience or a non-scholarly audience? Because I think our assumption is that, Arabic is the language of Islamic law because pretty much anywhere in any region, the scholarly community that would engage with these texts would know Arabic. So even though they speak their own local languages, the language they would sort of engage in in terms of the legal text would be Arabic. But since you're seeing these different languages circulating here, I wonder if you can speak to the audience and whether that's connected to why there are these different languages. I think, at least for me, an interesting way to think about it. Um, is um, you know the ways in which uh, being a student or a student of Islamic law, especially in 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 you know pre-modern and, and colonial Mauritania and Sudan and really through the Sahara and different parts of of, of Africa, um, that that notion of being a student uh, looks very different than we would normally assume today. And so it doesn't just mean studying Islamic law in a madrasa or in a madrasa or in a halwa or something like this, but it, but it also means um, um, taking very seriously the, the theological and the legal and, and, and the moral commitments of uh, Islamic law in someone's daily life. Um, and so in that sense, then, um, it is not uh, as surprising to imagine, and certainly when we see this in the historical data, um, 
people reciting, people who may not otherwise be committing their life to legal studies in what we would consider to be a formal way today, uh, taking these versifications or even taking uh, uh, something like the the Mutasar the, Khabib the itself, which is a very kind of unique, such a hyper-distilled and condensed text that even though it's prose, um, it is often almost has a, a, a kind of versifying quality because it is so condensed. It's something that is sort of more easily recited. You'll see people reciting these, and, you, and we can read about people reciting these in markets, um, uh, in their homes, while they're going about their daily life. Um, and I think that um, simply because they're not doing so in a school does not mean that they're not a student of Islamic law um, or that they are not taking Islamic law as sort of a central um, kind of moral ethical uh, uh, um, value or space in their lives. I was saying, I completely agree with, uh, with what Matthew and Sadia, both of you mentioned. And also, I absolutely love the way Matthew put some of these, you know, uh, uh, questions related to, you know, the audience. Uh, primarily what I see, you know, these texts can be studied uh, both uh, in the introductory, not only yeah, in introductory, intermediate and advanced level. The same text can be studied in, in, in multiple ways, right? So this is what, for example, Bringli Masik talks about, you know, uh, in the uh, upper land Yemen, where Minhaj Talibin is studied immediately after the students uh, study Quran, right? So they memorize it and it's part of the Mahfuzat literature. And then, then, but then Minhaj is also an advanced text, right? It is also studied by the students at the, not only at the very beginning of their, you know, career or even before they, you know, pursue anything related to Islam or Islamic law, they still study the text. They memorize it and then, you know, they might follow. But also they, at, towards the end of their career, they still study the same text. So, uh, and this, these were, you know, first and foremost, you, uh, we can identify them as a textual community and many scholars have done already. So identifying them as a textual community. So the constant engagement with the same text through multiple uh, ways of reading amassed uh, different sort of audiences from different walks of the community. So some, you know, from very primary level, uh, some, you know, uh, in the advanced level as well, uh, studying the same text. But also some of these texts, the commentaries and super commentaries were also hierarchized in the same, in similar ways. Some text cuts across the boundaries of the audience. Some are like, you know, for example, something like, uh, in my case, Tahfatul Mujahid, uh, sorry, Tahfatul Mahtaj is uh, studied by, in an advanced level. So there are sort of hierarchies in the ways in which these texts are written and studied. But also it sort of directly relates to some of the discussions that we had uh, with regard to the question of language, right? The very fact that, you know, many of these texts were translated and many of these uh, people emphasized on the importance or the centrality of the language, whether it's Malay or, you know, or Tamil, they did uh, that mainly because uh, you know they wanted to get across to a larger audience you know that uh, not necessarily spoke the language uh, spoke arabic or were familiar and many of the others uh, wrote that in their preface uh, when they translated or when they wrote something in uh, in a new uh, in a in a unfam- quote unquote unfamiliar language uh, of of islamic law so, uh, you know, that itself also shows uh, the wider audience they had uh, in mind when they were writing the text. And also another aspect that Matthew also mentioned 
uh, in passing about the glosses and the translations and the marginalia and you know all these are various forms in which different uh, you know layers of the audience engage with the text right so if you already know uh, arabic very well and then if you are an advanced scholar like a specialized or specialist scholar then you don't need to translate or you uh, you don't need to write a you know marginalia or a, a, you know in a different language many of these glosses were written in my case i see in malay or javanese or in sometimes in in, uh, in tamil arabic and so forth so the uh, intermediate students would write you know this marginalia in their languages because you know they you know those languages were more important yeah no that's uh, it's a really great point both of you are bringing up and it's sort of getting me thinking about uh this uh, islamic law class that i teach pretty much every year and you know do the sort of typical like okay here's the historical development of the law here are the kind of different genres right like uh colonial colonialism and its impacts on islamic law some contemporary issues in islamic law and um and we do some amount of sort of you know reading of um Uh, you know of substantive legal texts that have been translated into english but uh, you know what you guys what both of you are saying has got me thinking about you know that that one element that i have not really emphasized to the students that's you know important to think about is how much islamic law is part of people's everyday pietistic lives theoretically uh, one of the things that i have been trying to emphasize through my work uh, the forthcoming book which is interestingly titled or at least like you know it, uh, immediately relates to what uh, sadia was mentioning the circulation of islamic law right so it's titled islamic law in circulation and the ways in which these texts uh, are circulated across the indian ocean and eastern mediterranean regions so despite of these texts being circulated in in such uh, broad canvas geographical canvas uh, when the authors something that i wanted to emphasize even though they were writing commentaries or super commentaries or abridgments uh, their engagements were mu- were very much regionally you know located or you know at least as a student of history i would like to see them as part of a regionalization process or a vernacularization process of course they deal with a larger you know textual corpus that has you know that has a tradition or genealogy that goes back uh, centuries but still like you know when nevavi is writing a text uh, in 13th century in damascus it is very much part of you know and product of that particular regional context as well as like a commentary when ibn ibn hajar al haytami is writing a commentary on minhaj talibin in 16th century makkah you know makkah itself is a major actor so the region itself is a major actor even though he is dealing with a text that is 300 uh, uh, years you know uh, older for him and generalization in the post classical commentarial tradition is something that i sort of would like to emphasize i have been wanting to emphasize and uh, therefore you know the variations uh, in the regionalization process or this trans regionality sort of merge uh, in the yeah i, I see in, in my own work i think something pretty similar um you know when when i think about kind of regionalization or or, or different regions that uh Islamic law circulates in Africa. Um you know I I try to think about it um both physically so as a space that students uh and scholars go to when they need and they study uh and and oftentimes they'll return back home. Um but also sort of discursively, right? So so the, the types of commentarial uh traditions or lineages um 
that move across Africa and often take, um, you know, very particular, um, sometimes kind of normative uh, uh, valuations or meaning. So in, in a physical sense, then, you know, I, I work on, on the Maliki world in Islamic Africa. Um, and so, you know, regionally, the two, you know, huge, enormous centers and kind of looming shadows are Egypt and Morocco. Um, and they, you know, they, they, they come up in really interesting ways um, by uh, centers and in kind of, you know, regional spaces um, that are not those, uh, but, but sort of um, within at least the secondary source literature sort of exist in their shadows. Um, and so kind of a common trope that, that you'll often see um, in Sudan and in different ways in Mauritania um, are, uh, you know, when a scholar um, or as, as proof of, of, a, of a local scholar's uh, erudition um, or sort of the, their miraculous or sort of divinely ordained insight into law, they'll often go to these other places. Um, and they'll go to these other places in, in, in really kind of fantastic terms, and they will show um, their, their sort of intellectual acumen and superiority over these other regions, of these, these other regional centers. Um, and so, you know, a really kind of uh, common theme in, in lots of uh, Sudanese biographical dictionary is a great scholar going to Egypt and essentially beating Egyptian scholars in some type of legal debate. Um, there's a super famous, I think, 16th century example of, of uh, a scholar going uh, to Egypt and, and getting in, in a long debate with um, sort of the leading Maliki scholar in, in Cairo at the time, and so thoroughly trouncing him in the legal debate that the scholar takes off his shawl and, and retrieves the, the flag of his family and gives them to the legal scholar and says, take these home as proof uh, of, 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 of your skill and, and insight. So that's sort of in a regional sense, but also kind of in, in, in I think I said, a, you know, discursive or sort of a commentary, comment, uh, commentarial sense, you, you'll see um, different uh, regional uh, lines of transmission. And those, when you talk about different sort of regional lines of transmission um, of commentaries of the Khalil, for example, um, they often uh, times, they, they usually connote um, very specific kind of methodological commitments. Um, and so in Mauritania, you will see um, uh, different regional centers in Mauritania that teach the Khalil differently and that uh, cite um, uh, or explain sort of those differences, uh, sometimes historically accurately and sometimes in a kind of a, a more aspirational way, that um, they are the products of uh, the Timbuktu tradition, the Malian tradition, um, or the Fessi tradition, or the Kyrenian tradition. Um, and it becomes sort of a really interesting, you know, question then as a scholars to try to figure out, you know, what does that actually mean in practice? Um, because as, as, you know, we all know, to, you know, transmitting a legal text or writing a commentary about a work of law is uh, uh, never just simply reproducing what you studied under a teacher. It's never just reproducing what you had transmitted to you by someone else. Um, and so there's going to be necessarily some intervention in the text. There's going to be necessarily some deviation um, from, um, you know, the, the commitments of, 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 you know, the, the, the object of commentary. So I think, you know, that's, that's um, uh, something that I try to, to, to think about or focus on. Um, and then I guess the, the, the last point is, is, you know, both within Sudan, but like, you know, also, you know, in, in Mauritania, um, regionally, there are specific uh, legal questions that often arise more frequently. Um, so in Mauritania, for example, um, even commentaries of the Khalil would look different than commentaries in Sudan or in Guinea uh, or different parts of Islamic Africa um, because they will privilege or feature um, questions that are more salient um, 
to the people that are reading them and writing about them in the Times. Well, Mortania, you know, these questions are often about caravans. They're about Friday prayer. They're about zakat. They're about you know, very particular issues to, to oftentimes Bedou society in the Western Sahara in the 19th and 18th and 17th centuries. Um, and those questions will not look the same um, in the 19th century Sudan, for example. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, I really appreciate this point that you're bringing up, uh, uh, Matthew, about the the kind of relation between what is seen as the center and what's seen as like, you know, what is influenced and who is the influencer. Uh, and, you know, <clears throat> this is very much this um, way in which, uh, you know, the story that you're describing of, the, you know, uh, that scholar going to Egypt, right, and beating the Egyptian scholar, right? And so you can see the ways in which what we have made into the periphery speaks back to the center that these are kinds of, you know, relations across these regions, uh, you know, that cannot so easily be understood as one is the center and is influencing, right, the legal discourse that is happening, uh, you know, further down south. I really appreciate, um, you know, you you kind of calling our attention to that. Um, and in relation to that, I wanted to ask you, Mahmoud, if you see something similar in the kind of Indian Ocean connections that you're noting, uh, you know, in the in the Shafi uh, legal tradition that you're looking at, are there these kinds of assumptions about center and periphery or how are people kind of, uh, you know, influencing each other across these regions? Uh, definitely, uh, because uh, many, you know, something that I wanted to emphasize is that uh, now you know the Shafi school of law, for example, is uh, mostly practiced in the Indian Ocean coast, so Indian Ocean littoral, right, in Southeast Asia and coastal South Asia, and then also East Africa and so forth. So uh, when the scholars write, you know, from these regions um, texts in uh, in Shafi school of law, they didn't want to, you know, sort of take everything as was imported to them. So they uh, reformulated and you know reshaped uh, many of the uh, uh, laws or rulings within these uh, traditions. So using like you know sometimes using the uh, sahih over asah, or you know or less valid opinions over you know most valid ones, and so forth. So like the prioritization or the economy and politics of you know prioritizing particular opinions over the standard. Uh, standpoints of the school uh, is a sort of strategy that many of these authors accommodated uh, while, you know, contextualizing or vernacularizing Islamic law or Shafi school of law, particularly in this context, uh, in order to assert their own voices in the in the larger uh, traditions of you know uh, writing commentaries. So we do see that kind of, you know, exercises uh, from many of these authors where they try to contextualize, you know, and by contextualizing, speaking back to the, you know, particularly I would give just a brief example of this uh, Fatul Mu'in by Zainuddin al-Malaybari in 16th century, who possibly studied with his teacher, Ibn Hajar al-Haytami. And then in this text, we uh, repeatedly see the reference uh, where he says, Khilaf al-Shaykhina or, you know, in opposite to my teacher. So that is a very evident, uh, you know, uh, example of, you know, where an Indian scholar, you know, tries to, you know, articulate his uh, independent opinions um, that is most applicable uh, for an Indian context where Muslims were, even though they were very, you know, numerically uh, so much, but still like, you know, a minority community. 
and politically without uh, you know having control over the region so you know this sort of expressions of dissent uh, were uh, important elements in which uh, again like you know the periphery is speaking back to the center of islamic law yeah Sadia, do it, it just uh, Mahmoud, your your great comments sort of it made me um, uh, realize uh, or you know want to to to, to uh, reiterate too that sort of um, you know despite the fact that um, Africa, for example, and then presumably many other parts of, of the Islamic world um, have often been regarded as uh, uh, periphery to some type some type of kind of nebulously defined Islamic center. Um, Within state of Islamic law, but you know, also by by oftentimes by Arabs themselves, um, you know, in rare cases, um, you know, would I find um, uh, African legal scholars um, considering, you know, viewing themselves as existing and working on law from some type of marginal status, from some some type of periphery, and maybe this was kind of implicit in what we were talking about. Um, but you, you know, despite um, sort of being called an Islamic periphery, you know, rarely is this the case. Um, by those that are uh, living and working and teaching and, and producing or practicing Islamic law uh, in them. And so I think, you know, the, these stories and these kind of literary themes um, of, of, you know, going to Egypt or going to Mecca and Medina or, you know, becoming the, the prized teacher of, uh, you know, the, the Moroccan sultan or something, um, you know, that these are kind of, you know, subversive ways of, you know, flipping the center and periphery. Um, you know, flipping, you know, the, the assumptions of what could a black African legal scholar do or what could a Saharan legal scholar do um, in kind of the otherwise um, sort of, you know, bastions of the Arab intellectual heritage. A brief addition to what, uh, what Matthew uh, said, this sort of, uh, you know, what I also noticed is that uh, the reimagination of the center, you know, uh, where the center itself or the Islamic heartlands are no longer the important centers. So after many of the students went back, went to uh, Mecca, Medina, Cairo, and came back in 15th century or 16th century, and so forth. And then, uh, you know, they started their own centers of Islamic learning. And then these became the immediately accessible centers for many Indian or Chinese or Indonesian and, you know, centers. And uh, once we come to 19th and 20th century, so many of students, you know, from these regions go one step further saying that, uh, you know, what do Arabs know about Islam? The real Islam is, you know, in our regions, like you know, in India or Indonesia and so forth. So the reimagination of the center and, you know, rebirth of Mecca, you know, in many, you know, uh, whether it's in uh, Malaya world or in Gujarat and so forth, we see that kind of reimagination. So in that sense, you know, Islamic law or history of Islamic law is in, in several ways a multi-directional journey. It's not, you know, something that Isa Hussein, uh, for example, in her work on politics of Islamic law, she emphasizes that uh, it's not uh, an export from the Middle East to the rest of the uh, Islamic world. Rather, it's a multi-directional journey. Uh, in which African, uh, Asian, Arab, you know, uh, scholars sort of, you know, came together uh, in the in the long process of circulation, circulating Islamic law. Yeah, that's a great point. It, it reminds me of, of kind of one last story, one anecdote that always is uh, very funny to me. Um, it, there, there's this uh, kind of story about uh, you know the ways in which these regional centers. Um, 
you know, not only are you know physical places that that legal scholars uh, meet and study and students you know study under them, um, but also sort of um, are are constructed in ways that um, um, sort of vie for uh, a a you know somewhat dubiously defined kind of uh, a center of of authenticity within the legal school, um, and so there's there's the story that you know. Uh, once upon a time, a Maliki legal, sorry, a Moroccan uh, a Maliki legal scholar jurist uh, is in Cairo and, and meets an Egyptian Maliki legal scholar. And the Egyptian says, uh, you, you, you Moroccans, you, you Maghreba, you don't, you don't ever, you know, you don't write enough on law. Like, you, what do you, why, why is your supposed legal school, right, as some valuation of methodology and then hierarchy and canon. Why is your understanding of the Maliki Legal School, why do you think it's better than ours? We're the ones that are producing legal texts and we're the ones that are doing commentaries and we're the ones. And the Moroccan says, well, of course, we don't, we, we're not writing much because we're so busy correcting all of your errors. You're, <laughs> you're the ones that are writing these legal texts, but they are just riddled with mistakes. And so we're the ones doing the hawashi and we're the ones doing the super glosses on the legal texts that you write. Um, that are not understanding uh, the Maliki method correctly, um, and so it's it's always really funny to see how how you know uh, kind of notions of authenticity and also ideas of of uh, you know regional superiority are repurposed in ways that you would not normally expect. Yeah, that's such a great point. I you know it's like whenever I teach sort of on the pre-modern Islamic context in you know in in, in my classes, it's always so interesting to me to see students having their geography reoriented, right? Because you can see how <clears throat> we have come to see Europe and North America as the center <clears throat> and all other places as the peripheries. And then all of a sudden you're looking at this world now where, you know, those places are not really even part of the conversation, but also that, you know, the 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 kind of, you know, Afro-Asian world is so deeply interconnected and it's very hard to kind of be like, this is the center that is just influencing or that's where knowledge is traveling out from right to other places. You can see that it's all sort of circulating, uh, you know, and, and going back to the center. So, you know, you see these South Asian scholars who are going to Makkah to study, right. And, and then coming back and, you know, or, or they become themselves central teachers in Makkah, right. And, and all of these ways, so it's, it's uh, you know, and, and similar, you know, you're describing similarly, Matthew, in the context of, uh, you know, Islam in Africa. So it's, it's really great to kind of, you know, I, I feel like part of the power of history and the study of history is that it gets us to question what has become so natural to us today uh, and, and uh, you know, and, and question these ideas of center and periphery. So thank you for, for, you know, your very, very rich comments in this direction. Thanks for listening to this episode of History Speaks. I'm very grateful to Matthew and Mahmoud for speaking with me today about their research. You can find more information about their work as well as the History Speaks series at themaidan.com backslash podcast. And please stay tuned for our next episode.